What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at, t at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for he have bought, brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for what should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be a witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked to leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, 
you son of, son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out to, into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Thank you. As we go to prayer, uh, let me just mention something. Uh, you probably noticed that Pastor Andrew's not here this morning. He's ministering in North Carolina this weekend, and Carmen and, and Wesley James are with him. Uh, he'll be back the middle of the week, but uh, I wanted to bring up that uh, I'm just I'm grateful to the Lord for Andrew. He's been here at Indian Creek as of this week. It'll be three years, so I know that might not seem like it's been that long, uh, but uh, if you feel so inclined, I think it might be good to send him a text message this week and just say, hey, I'm, I'm grateful for you and uh, express your appreciation for him. Um, but just grateful for that brother and, and wanted to bring that up because it's um, may you may miss it, you know, if you're not uh, aware of that. So uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of the word. Father in heaven, your word is powerful, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and, and it reveals the thoughts and intents of our hearts. When we come to this book, it's like we're looking in a really clear mirror, and we can see what we're really like. And yet we confess, Father, that so often we come to that mirror and we see and we look at all the various things that, we, that your Spirit is revealing to us and we walk away unwilling to change. And so, Father, we come to you uh, 
just confessing that that is the case and asking that you would graciously, patiently work in us in spite of our stubborn hearts that do not want to hear what you have to say. And Father, I'm mindful of the fact that in a room this size, there are just dozens or perhaps even hundreds of varied perspectives on what's about to take place for the next few minutes. Many are distracted, burdened with the cares of this life, weighted down with grief or loss, confused by depression that cannot be escaped, or even just distracted by the various things that are taking place around us. And we know we're not unaware or ignorant of the fact that your enemy is scheming even now and hates the preaching of the word and would love nothing more than for us to just ignore what you have to say. And so, Father, we pray that you would protect us from that. And, Lord, we recognize that in our power we cannot even grasp your truth. We need your spirit. And so we pray that you would pour out your power, your understanding, your light in this room in abundance, far beyond what we could ask or think, so that we might come to find our hope in you and our joy in you. And uh, we pray as well for Pastor Andrew as he ministers in North Carolina this weekend. I pray that you would pour out your blessing on him and upon all those who have been sent out from Indian Creek to minister across the country and, in, in fact, around the world. And, and so we pray for your blessing on them and on their ministry. And, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Out of all the social challenges that modern people face, I think you'll agree that one of the greatest is a lack of commitment and the resulting lack of security that all of us feel in the various relationships and institutions in which we participate. For example, employees who feel that their job is safe and that their boss wants them, wants them to be successful thrive. We know this. And yet, automation and globalization have created an environment in which just about anyone's job can quickly become obsolete. Gone are the days in which an average worker remains in his position for 40 years and then retires with a pension. That seems like a thing of the past. That's not part of life anymore. The same is true in the way that Americans, your neighbors and mine, navigate romantic relationships. Sociologists have observed that the unlimited choices available to us through dating apps or the ubiquity of pornography the erosion of sexual mores, other factors like increased mobility have overwhelmed many young adults and decreased the likelihood significantly that they will pursue the permanence and the commitment of marriage. In fact, according to a survey conducted recently by Pew Research, nearly 60% of all adults between the ages of 18 and 44 have 
lived with a romantic partner who is not their spouse at one point in their lives. The evidence is clear that this trend is harmful both for the people in these relationships and especially for their children. And yet, incredibly, almost half of all Americans have convinced themselves that cohabitation is not just morally permissible, but just as good as marriage. And what is perhaps most striking is that According to surveys, almost a third of professing evangelical Christians agree. And we could talk about the way that the lack of commitment has bled into other parts of our lives. They impact our relationships, our relationships in the church, the way that parents relate to their children, the way that children relate to their own parents. Most people go through life believing, in fact knowing, that their most important relationships at work, at home, at school, at church, throughout their life, could abruptly end or become suddenly hostile without warning and without notice. So think about how this has impacted your own life. Uh, it's much more than just statistics. How the divorce, how the estrangement, how the sudden and in inexplicable firing, the absentee father or mother the friend who ghosted you on social media, has ravaged your inner life and all but ruined you for other relationships. Think about how these things have impacted you even personally. See, what our passage today shows is that this lack of loyalty, this lack of commitment so pervasive in modern society today is not something that God's people should have a problem with because it is not something that our God has a problem with. Like, he is a loyal God. He's a God of loyal love and steadfast mercy toward us. He's a God who keeps covenant, who shows loyalty to his people. And that loyal love that he shows toward us gives rise to an ability in the believer to show loyal love back to him because we feel so safe and we know that we are loved in Christ. And it actually enables us to be committed to one another. Jonathan, in particular, demonstrates for us what this kind of loyalty looks like in his treatment of David. He is an example both of Christ-like mercy and the Christian's loyal love. His commitment to David is based on God's work through David. And so that's where we're going to focus today. David is God's anointed king, and Jonathan is going to prove loyal to him. So that's our central message today. God's king deserves loyalty. God's king deserves loyalty. And we're going to see uh, that that kind of loyalty that God's king deserves bears four specific characteristics. Notice with me, first of all, from verses 1 through 9, that God's king deserves committed loyalty. God's king deserves committed loyalty. By the time that Jonathan and David catch up with each other after the uh, extreme, uh, uh, just the, the, the extremity of the previous chapters that you may remember from last week, uh, Saul has already made several attempts on David's life. He's pursued him to his own front door and even to the home of Samuel the prophet. David is exhausted. He's scared. Understandably, he is angry. 
And so he comes before Jonathan, literally not to Jonathan, but before Jonathan. The the language here is very formal. David is coming before Jonathan, not first of all as a friend, but in his official capacity as the crown prince in order to get justice and to invoke the covenant that the two of them had made made together all the way back at the beginning of chapter 18. He says to Jonathan, what have I done? Essentially, vindicate me, Jonathan. Like, tell me I'm innocent. The last Jonathan had heard, Saul had abandoned his vendetta. Apparently, he hadn't gotten the memo that he had picked it back up, and he he was pursuing David once again. And and, and so the next day uh, was their monthly religious feast required by the law of Moses. David was supposed to be there at the table, but of course, there was no way he was going to go anywhere near Saul. So he suggests to Jonathan, in order for Jonathan to understand the stakes of the situation, he says, let's perpetrate this ruse against your father. Here again, Saul is left completely in the dark, as has been the case ever since he rebelled against the Lord. He doesn't know what's going on. And and so he says, Jonathan, I'm not going to be there, and I want you to watch how your father reacts to that state of affairs. Jonathan needed to see it with his own eyes. But what's most instructive, I think, about this initial exchange is the way in which David pleads for Jonathan's help in verse 8. Look at verse 8. What does he say? He says, deal kindly with your servant. Why? Why would Jonathan deal kindly with David? For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. Uh, What's David talking about? He's talking about the time, you remember back from last week in the beginning of chapter 18, when Jonathan gave David his royal robe and recognized the fact that he was in fact God's anointed king and the two of them entered into a covenant with one another. I've heard a lot of people talk about this relationship between Jonathan and David and, you know, draw some principles of application from their relationship. Uh, Many have said this is a really deep friendship, and certainly as believers, we need deep friendships, people that encourage us in our walk with Christ. That's important, but I think there's more going on in David and Jonathan's relationship. More recently, uh, I've actually heard that David and Jonathan's relationship is something like a, uh, a same-sex romance. And, and the only reason I bring that up is because you probably have heard, some of you have heard that too. Uh, but to this, I can only say that says more about the interpreter and about our broken society than what's actually in the text. That's absolutely not what's going on there. So our, our writer isn't describing a perverse relationship, and he's going deeper than just friendship. What's the nature of this relationship? It's the idea of a covenant, a formal commitment of mutual loyalty. Throughout this passage, we see words like favor, uh, covenant, deal kindly, swear, sworn, steadfast love, forever. This is the language of covenant love. Uh, The main concept is embodied in the Hebrew word chesed. Uh, It's a word that I've brought up before. It appears 243 times in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's translated in all sorts of ways. Uh, it depends on the version that, you're, that you've got in your lap there. But when you see the words loving kindness or steadfast love, kindness, mercy, often it is this Hebrew word chesed. When David asked Jonathan to deal kindly with him, he uses this Hebrew word chesed, loyal love, covenant love. Now, if you think about it and just take a step back and look at the situation, that is fascinating. I'm no historian, but I do enjoy history, and I cannot think of a single example uh, 
in which the prince of the blood swears allegiance to a man who has already been called out as the person who's going to be the next king and take over the throne that from the world's perspective is rightfully yours. I mean, the fact that Jonathan would show this kind of kindness to David is remarkable. Can you imagine the kind of radical humility it would take for Jonathan, a beloved hero, certainly well qualified to be the king, to swear allegiance to David? What an incredible commitment. You see, usually when the Bible talks about loyalty, it's referring to God's loyal, loving kindness towards towards us, towards his people. But Sometimes, though, it's a matter of loyalty between human beings, and it's patterned after God's goodness. So, for example, uh, in the book of Joshua, when the spies uh, of God's people cross the Jordan River, and they come to the city of Jericho, and they're uh, kind of checking things out and making sure that it's, it's uh, safe to, to go and, and perpetrate this conquest of the land, uh, they're pursued by these men. And, and so this prostitute by the name of Rahab, takes them in, and and we're told that she shows loyal love. She shows kindness to these men, and she hides them from their pursuers. And then she says to them, you show kindness to me. When you guys come back and you conquer this city, I I want you to save me and my family. And they say, yeah, we'll show kindness to you. We'll show you loyal love. You've shown it to us. We'll show it to you. Another example appears in Judges chapter 1. The Kenites, you might remember them from 1 Samuel. Uh, But this family, uh, uh, part of Moses' extended family, they show loyal love. They show kindness to the children of Israel when they're trying to conquer a city. And so then centuries later, when Saul comes along, and he's asked by the Lord to defeat the Amalekites, what does Saul do? He shows loyal love to the Kenites, who were living among the Amalekites. And he says, you guys get out of the way, because we're about to have this battle. So here's the point. In Jonathan's case, his loyalty to David foreshadows the covenant between the people of God and the heir to David's throne, Jesus himself. In other words, it's this, it's this relationship of covenant loyalty, and it's, and it's horizontal. It's between one man and another man, but it's based on the covenant loyalty that God is already showing that he is a person who keeps his promises to us. Jonathan understood that David was God's anointed, and so he made a commitment to him. He didn't just say, David's a nice guy. He didn't just say, David is the kind of person I would love to uh, grab a burger with. You know, we'll go hunting together. No, it was much more than that. He made a commitment to David. He swore allegiance to him. He obligated himself to him as the king. say, well, why did he do that? It's because, folks, understand, Jonathan recognized by faith that God was going to lead his people through his anointed king, David. Jonathan recognized that the Lord's presence and his power rested on David, that the Lord would bless all those who lived in allegiance to him. He knew by faith that outside of a relationship with David as God's anointed king, there was going to be chaos, violence, and death. On the other hand, those who followed David would enjoy the peace and the wholeness that God intends for his people to enjoy because David was God's anointed king. And when Jonathan recognized this, he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you. From the perspective of the world, Jonathan had every right to inherit the throne, but Jonathan didn't share the perspective of the world. He saw with the eyes of faith. And so he said to the rightful king, here, you take my robes. You're the king. 
You're the one who has the right to sit on the throne. How about you this morning? Is God's anointed king your king? Or is he just a hobby or a tradition or something that you think about on a Sunday morning every once in a while? Is he just a fallback just in case? From the perspective of the world, there is one person who has the right to occupy the throne of your life. And that's you, right? But God invites you to see the truth through the eyes of faith and understand that you actually have no right to be on that throne. Like that's a throne, the the rulership of your heart and your life, that belongs to King Jesus. We live in an age of convenience and selectivity. You read something in the Bible that you don't like, you just ignore it. Find somebody, you can always do this, especially on the internet. (laughs) Someone will sound like an expert and tell you, you don't have to pay attention to that part of the Bible. (laughs) You have something come up that's more interesting to you than gathering with God's people to worship God's king on the Lord's day? Just skip it. I mean, who cares, right? One of the reasons why we have formal church membership here at Indian Creek is because God's king deserves committed loyalty. He's earned the right to expect our commitment. Are you committed to him? I realize some of you are working through some matters of conscience and experiences in your past, and you need to work through those things until you're settled in your mind. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the cultural tendency that we all participate in to say, well, I'll, be, I'll have one foot in, and I'm going to keep one foot out. I'm going to ride the fence. I'm not going to be committed to my king. By the way, our young people, they see this, right? And they're learning We are training them. We're training them to say, hey, God's merciful, God's loyal to us, but only to a point. I'm going to be loyal to him, but only to a point. But guys, God deserves much more than that. He deserves and, in fact, demands committed loyalty. Secondly, notice with me from verses 10 through 24 that God's king deserves complete loyalty loyalty. God's king deserves complete loyalty. So in verse 10, beginning in verse 10, the two friends, they sense that prying eyes and listening ears are always lurking, and so they move their conversation to an open field where they won't be heard, and they work out the details of a plan. Jonathan's going to go to the meal. David's going to stay away, but Jonathan needs to be able to communicate to David the outcome of their conversation. So he hatches this plan in which he's going to go out to a field where David's going to be hiding with an earshot. And and Jonathan is going to go out there with a a young boy, uh, a servant of of some kind. And and he's going to pretend that he's shooting at targets with his bow. And he says, David, if you hear me say that to the boy that the arrows are on this side of you, come, come get them, then you know you're safe. But if I say to the boy, hey, the arrows are past you, they're beyond you, then you know you're not safe and you need to stay away. 
Uh, after all, they, they don't know whether they're going to have the chance even to talk face to face. So they need to have this kind of coded language with each other. But what's most striking about this conversation in the field is what Jonathan says in verses 13 and following. Let me read it to you one more time. This is what Jonathan says to David. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love. That's the chesed, right? Of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, your chesed, from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Did you catch the intensity of Jonathan's words to David in that moment? This is not just a stroll through the apple orchard. This is serious stuff. He recognizes, Jonathan is aware of the significance of what his own father is doing. He recognizes and understands that if Saul aligns himself against David, and if he continues to try to pursue and murder David, what Saul's doing is he's battling against God himself. And Jonathan knows that what's in store for people like that. And by the way, he understands that as the king's son, what's in store for him is typically in the ancient Near East going to be death for him and his entire household. And so what he does is he trusts in David's commitment to their covenant and he puts all of the eggs in David's basket and he puts even his own life and the life of his wife and his children into David's hands. In other words, he is showing complete loyalty to God's king. Why is that? Because God deserves it. Because God's king deserves it. He shows us that he's worthy of it, that he is able to be trusted. No limits, no exceptions. And of course, David's heir to David's throne, Jesus Christ, the Savior, demands this kind of loyalty as well. Uh, here's what Jesus says in Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Like in comparison with your commitment to Jesus, the relationship that you have with everybody else ought to look like hate. But what do we say today? We say, well, I, I can't do what Jesus asked me to do because that would make my spouse upset. I can't do what Jesus asked me to do because that would put me at odds with my mother or with my children. That would put my life at, re at risk. Be reasonable, right? But when we put limitations on our loyalty, we're, we're, when we're not completely loyal to God's king, it's not somebody else that's being unreasonable. It's us who, who's being unreasonable. I mean, think about who we're talking about here. Who is God's king? He's the king of kings. He, he was the divine voice thundering the worlds into existence before time began. He is the one who holds the molecules of the universe together and keeps creation from oblivion. He is holy, 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 a consuming fire, a compassionate savior, a perfect judge. 
He didn't just show kindness. He showed limitless kindness to the very people who were the least deserving. And he knows each one of you. And he created each one of you for a reason and for a purpose. And he invites each one of you into relationship with him. And he's paid for all of it. So he demands and he deserves our complete loyalty, friends. So when you say... Jesus, I believe in you, but I'm going to keep the crown and the throne for me. Or Jesus, I love you, but stay out of my pocketbook. Or Jesus, I trust you, but stay away from my romantic relationships. Or Jesus, I I believe in you, but don't take my kids to another country as missionaries. When we say those types of things, it's, it's it's not us who are being reasonable. It's us who are being unreasonable. You haven't learned what Jonathan understands. God has done an incredible work in Jonathan's life to humble him and to give him remarkable faith. Uh, Jonathan is like the man that Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 13. A man one day is out and he's walking in the field. And he is walking through the long grass and he trips over a box and he looks at the box and he opens the box and inside there's a, a great treasure. I mean, just immeasurably valuable. And then he looks over and he sees the, the field is for sale. But he can't afford to pay for the field. So what does he do? He goes home and joyfully, Jesus says, he sells everything that he has. He sells his house and his car and all of his clothes and all of his guns and everything he possesses. And he gladly goes and takes that money and he buys the field because he found the treasure in the field. This is what Jonathan's doing with David. He's saying, I've sold everything else because I want this treasure, the treasure of following and being loyal to God's king. You know why your loyalty is incomplete? It's because you don't know what you have. You don't know what you've just stumbled on in the field. Because if the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and really shows you your desperate plight, if He really shows you how under judgment you are, and then He shows you how Jesus has taken all of our sins away, then you cannot help but say, okay, all of who I am and all of the things that I have, they belong to you. I'm completely loyal to you. He's the King, and and God's King deserves our loyalty. He deserves our committed loyalty. He deserves our complete loyalty. Thirdly, notice with me from verses 24 through 34 that God's king deserves costly loyalty. God's king deserves costly loyalty. So Jonathan returns from the field. The next day, Saul holds this feast right on schedule. Jonathan's there. Uh, Across from him, here's Saul. Abner is sitting next to Saul. And to Jonathan's left, the place is empty. That's where David's supposed to be. First day, Saul doesn't say anything. Nothing comes of it. Next day, second day of the feast, Jonathan's there. Here's Saul. There's Abner, Saul's commander. And next to Jonathan, there's an empty place. Finally, Saul loses his patience and he says, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Did you notice the coldness of Saul's question? It's not, Where's David? It's, Where's the son of Jesse? The son of that no-account sheep farmer in the tiny village of Bethlehem. Where's he? So Jonathan makes David's excuse. 
But Saul sees right through it, and he flies off the handle, and he starts cursing both his own son and his wife, Jonathan's mother. Uh, this is a man who is completely out of control, but it's, uh, it's not the first time that Jonathan and Saul have had it out. They've been in these arguments before, and so Jonathan doesn't back down. He brings it right back. He says, hey, what's, what, why should he die? What has David done? Why should he be put to death? And then big, brave Saul, in a mindless tantrum, subjects Jonathan to the very same attack that he had perpetrated against David a couple of chapters before. He picks up his spear, like, who is going to take Saul's spears away? Somebody please keep him away from the spears. And he hurls it at his own son. Thankfully, he's not very, he doesn't have very good aim. And then the narrator at the end of the section, he, he states the obvious. So Jonathan knew that it was Saul's purpose to put David to death. I guess so. So rewind, though, a couple of frames and put yourself at that dinner table. There you are, your food's in front of you, Saul's across the table, Abner's there, you're just, it's just you, and you know what's about to happen. Are you sticking up for David? Are you going to be loyal to David when it costs you something? Knowing that you're already trusting this guy with your life and the life of your children, and Jonathan passes the test. He makes a clear choice. He's sworn allegiance to David, and he's going to stick with it even when it's costly. So Saul throws this spear, and think about this, folks. This is David's suffering, but Jonathan's walking in it, right? So Jonathan is suffering at the hand of his father in identity with David, and I think for me, the loyalty of Jonathan is, is really a rebuke to us, isn't it? I mean, he's living in an age of types and shadows. He doesn't know any of the details of how God is going to send his own son into the world to die on a cross and take the punishment for sin. He doesn't know any of that. Long before the coming of Jesus, he's willing to risk his life in loyalty to God's king. I'm afraid we've nearly lost a sense for what it means to suffer in identity with Jesus. I mean, don't get me wrong. The freedoms that we enjoy, the fact that we can gather in a huge room like this, have air conditioning, nobody, none of the police are knocking on our door and saying you can't do this, that's a wonderful blessing. God actually tells us to pray for that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I hope you do. But the truth of the matter is that there are going to be times when we're faced with a choice. Confess allegiance to Jesus Christ and suffer, or deny him and enjoy the praise of men. What are we going to do when we're faced with that choice? By the way, that decision, it might not arrive in the way that you expect. Talking to a lot of Christians uh, who watch the news, it's like we think that the, the biggest threat is going to come from the Supreme Court or from the White House or some government arm uh, that, that's going to come and persecute the church, maybe that will come to pass. I don't know. I can't see the future. But it may not be persecution at all that tests your loyalty to Christ, whether you're willing to be loyal when it costs you something. It may be a job opportunity, too lucrative to ignore, that cuts you and your family off the possibility of being a part of a local church. As ridiculous as it sounds... It may be sports, a game threatens your loyalty to a person who died for you and took your sins away. It might be a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It, it may even be the pain of loss and grief that threatens your faith 
and you say, it's just too painful, I can't do this anymore. You see, we've opened ourselves up to a major vulnerability in our culture because we have communicated to one another, whether we meant to or not, that when you give your life to Christ and you say, I believe in you, Jesus, that everything after that is going to be great and you're not going to have any problems anymore. And even though sometimes we say, you know, I've, you know we're going to go through difficult times, we don't really believe it for ourselves. We go through that trial and we think, Lord, what, what is going on? Why are you bringing me through a trial? I've served you and I've loved you and I've worshipped you and I've believed in you. How could you do this to me? As if we're surprised that following a Savior who went to the cross is going to involve cross-shaped suffering. But we have to recognize that this idea that following Jesus is normally convenient, normally financially profitable, normally socially preferable, generally a net gain in terms of quality of life here on this earth is actually not the norm for believers down through the ages. True loyalty to God's king is costly. Years ago, a Lutheran pastor by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood this. He wrote a book, uh, kind of an exposition on the Sermon on the Mount titled The Cost of Discipleship. Years later, he would live to see his own loyalty tested. He spent time in prison by the Nazis because he refused to follow and fall in line with their twisted so-called Christian doctrine. He spent time in prison. He participated in a plot to assassinate Hitler uh, that failed because he was trying to rescue his people from the tyranny of the Third Reich. And so he was again arrested, forced to live in a concentration camp, and on the eve of liberation, he was hanged. And I bring that up because he's just a modern example, folks, of what Christians have understood since the days of the apostles. If you are following a savior, a king, who wore a crown of thorns, then you cannot expect your life to just be roses, right? It's going to be costly, and he deserves that kind of loyalty. He deserves committed loyalty. He deserves complete loyalty. He deserves costly loyalty. Fourthly, notice with me from verses 35 through 42 that God's king deserves constant loyalty. God's king deserves constant loyalty. So Jonathan comes out to the field. He uh, sends his secret message, David, it's not safe for you. He sends his servant back to the house. And since no one else is around, David can come out of hiding just for a few minutes and talk to his friend. And they embrace and they cry and they talk. And they renew their covenant commitment to each other. And for all they know, this is the last time that they're going to see each other. Uh, by the way, they do connect later in the book of 1 Samuel. But at this point, they don't know that that's going to be possible. And notice what Jonathan says. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Uh, so let me just notice really quickly two things about this final renewal of their covenant commitment. First, notice how the result of a deep and abiding covenant commitment is a deeper affection of the heart. Let me say that one more time. The result of a covenant commitment is a deeper affection. So here are two hardened warriors. Think about this. Both of these men had stared the enemy in the face. They had been in sword-to-sword -sword combat and won many times over. These men were hardened by the enemy, 
And yet when they say goodbye to each other, they're weeping. They love each other as their own soul. This is counterintuitive from the perspective of the world. We tend to think that commitment stifles affection. But here's what we're finding in the life of Jonathan and David. That commitment, that loyalty, that covenant actually ignites their affection for one another. Why is this? It's because if you persevere in your commitment to God's king, your affection for the king is going to grow beyond the bounds of your imagination. You are going to walk through times that feel like a desert valley, that feel like you're not feeling it. Where it's hard to get up and get out of bed on a Sunday morning and come to church and worship the king that you feel like is distant from you. But if you stick with it, if you don't allow a sense of spiritual boredom or aimlessness to keep you from pursuing Jesus, you may find on the other side of that valley a greater joy and a greater fruitfulness and a greater sense of the presence of Christ than you are currently capable of experiencing because he uses those times to grow you in your love for him. But then notice secondly that this final conversation focuses on the constancy of of their covenant love for one another. Jonathan is never going to give up or renege on his covenant love for God's king. He says, it's between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he's going to keep his oath, and when he's long gone, David ascends the throne, and Saul's dynasty is all but wiped out, and David's going to keep his promise too. If you keep reading through First and Second Samuel, you'll find that that's the case. Their covenant isn't like a modern-day contract with loopholes and escape clauses. It is constant, and our king deserves that, friends. He deserves our constant loyalty. So, briefly, let's just tie all this together. What I am telling you this morning is that a relationship like Jonathan's with David is only possible under the sovereign mercy of a kind and gracious God. What I'm saying is that God, who needs nothing, who is complete in, its, in himself, who does not need you or me, is so loving and gracious in himself that he actually shares himself with us in a way that is unstopping, that doesn't give up, that is merciful to the end, and that is central to his character. His love is loyal, it's unlimited, it's unbreaking, it's deep beyond your imagination, and because of his loving mercy to, toward us, because of who he is, that's why he sent Jesus into the world, and we can know and worship and have a relationship of loyal commitment to God's King, Jesus Christ. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you encountered this king? Have you met him? Maybe this morning you've appreciated Jesus, you've heard the name Jesus, you've maybe read a few of his teachings and you thought, what, what a good guy, but you've never made a commitment to him. You're not a Christian friend because your parents are Christians or because you come to church every once in a while or because you put a cross on you know, your wall or any of those other things. A Christian is somebody who recognizes his or her wickedness before the Lord, that he is under condemnation and judgment, and calls out to King Jesus to save him or her. Make a commitment to him today. Maybe you're here this morning, you've made a commitment to Christ, but for one reason or another, you know that your loyalty is not complete loyalty to Christ. Like there's a section over here of your life that you've held back from him. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your romantic relationships. Maybe it's your kids. And you've said, Jesus, I love you. I trust you. You can have my whole life. I just want this one area to be mine. But friends, Jesus is the king. He deserves your complete 
loyalty. Maybe this morning you're following Jesus, but when it begins to cost you something, you shrink back. When it becomes unpopular, you shrink back. When it becomes inconvenient, you say, no, thank you. But friend, you will never grow close to God if you are not willing to be loyal to King Jesus in the times when it costs you something, and it will cost you. It is a free gift, but you're going to have to say no in order to follow Jesus. Or maybe this morning you've been following Christ, you've been loyal to God's king, but this morning you're just tempted to give up and throw in the towel and your constancy is wavering. You're tired. But God's king deserves constant loyalty. And this morning I want to challenge you to renew your commitment to the Lord, to keep going because through the deep commitment, deeper affection is going to grow. Folks, what I'm saying is that Jesus is God's king, and and when you really come to know him, you'll see his mercies are new every morning. And if you're breathing this morning, if you can hear what I'm saying, then God's mercies are for you. I mean, you're not here on the basis of something that you've earned. You're here because God is mercifully allowing you to be here and be in this world and be alive. That's proof positive that God's mercy is for you. And so what I'm saying is that he's inviting you to recognize that with Jesus, you are safe. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing but death and despair. With Jesus, there's compassion and forgiveness. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing but condemnation. With Jesus, there's love. Apart from him, there's nothing but hate. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Commit to him today. Make it a complete commitment of loyalty. Be committed to him even when it costs you something. And be willing to stick with it. Persevere. And you'll find that his justice is pure. His mercy is everlasting to everyone who fears and follows him. Would you bow with me now in prayer?